It's always profitable for us to have the opportunity to talk about the Lord and to talk about the Word of the Lord. And of course, you have already the subject for today. We're referring to the passage that was read, that's Matthew 19. And I'd like you to put a marker in the place, if you would, because I feel that through the uh, while we're going to spend together, we want to look at some parallel passages of Scripture and see how they relate to the, the verses that we have for meditation today. So we need help from God, as at all other times, and we're asking the Lord by the power of the Spirit of God to warm our hearts and to draw us nearer to the Lord. We know that we need help from God every time we come to handle the book. And uh, no matter how much we prepare and uh, try to study through the passage, we still need the presence of the Lord himself. It's the presence of the Lord that makes the difference. I am glad to renew fellowship with you all this afternoon. Now we're going to look at these words in Matthew. They, they come in at the end of the chapter 19. And the subject is the kingdom and the teaching of the Lord about the kingdom, in particular uh, judgment in that kingdom. I'm sure it's not the most commonly studied of the subjects that relate to the Lord in that future time when he appears. Uh, nevertheless, uh, here we have the teaching of Christ. And because it's his word comes to us with all authority. And we're saying, Lord, take us through this passage. I'm, I'm regularly playing that way when I come to a chapter or a verse or a group of verses. I'm saying, Lord, take me through this passage of scripture. And it's just the same today. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we draw nigh to thee. We have a wonderful promise with the strongest assurance that if we draw nigh to thee in our helplessness and uselessness and sometimes even confusion, if we draw nigh to thee with all sincerity and draw nigh to thee in the strength of thy word and draw nigh to thee through Christ the Mediator, and through the virtue of his precious shed blood, then thou hast promised to draw near unto us. And Lord, we come today uh, as needy as ever. We pray for the ministry of the Lord to our hearts. That we'll forget all about one another. How important that is. That when it comes to opening the book, our attention may be riveted on that word. And our attention centered on Christ our risen, exalted Saviour. Lord, I need thee today. I need wisdom. I need a ready recollection of thy word. I need utterance in the things of God so that as we speak today, we might have the mind of the Lord for the meeting. O Lord, gather us around thy feet. We thank thee for what we have read in the gospel history, how there were those occasions, sometimes with many, sometimes with very, very few, but all the time, gathered around the Saviour's feet. Gather us in that fashion today. May we have a consciousness of the nearness of the Lord. And Lord, doubtless as we have come to the meeting, many other things come crowding into our minds, requiring attention. We believe that in this hour that we have given over to Thee, we have to have our minds closed into the word and everything else in this wayward world shut out from our thoughts. Lord, help us in that matter. And we pray that we may be blessed today, really blessed, gathering at Jesus' feet. Make the word of God to be an instrument used by the Holy Spirit with great power to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for help today. Help to understand as well as help to speak. And may we treasure in our hearts long after today the word that thou hast given. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I want you to read the words then as I refer them to you in Matthew uh, 19, and particularly uh, the verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit upon the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These all-important words point to three signal events. Events that are going to occur at the end of the age. First of these, as you look at the words of our Savior, the first of these will have to be the coming of the Lord, the coming of the great King. And uh, we have reference here to that grand and majestic day when the Son of Man shall ascend the throne of his glory. What a day that will be. What a day of triumph. What a day of singing. What a day of jubilation. It gladdens our hearts to dwell on the subject. And the Lord would have us do so. So we have three signal events. Which are going to occur at the end of the age. Our Lord is talking about them. And because he's talking about them. They remain matters of interest as well as matters of importance to us. That's the first event. The coming of the Son of Man to ascend the throne of his glory. Please be clear on these things. And the second great event mentioned by the Savior in the words before us will be the the marvelous change that is going to follow his enthronement. Because he's speaking of a period of time called the regeneration. So that's a change by its very name. Which will involve the complete transformation of the earth. Affecting the peoples of the earth. The countries of the earth. And this change will also impact upon the powers of the heavens above. So, the more you meditate on these words, it might be the kind of verse the average Christian will hurriedly dispose of and get on either to the end of the chapter or maybe even to the commencement of the next one. We dismiss things at times that we ought to stop with in solemn and yet joyous meditation. And this is just such a time. The three great events that are going to occur at the end of the age. So the first of them, the coming of the Lord, and in particular the reference is to his ascending the throne of his glory. And then the marvelous change that is introduced as a result of that. It's called, that change is called the regeneration. The third significant event mentioned by the Lord and because he spoke about it we are due to give it attention isn't that right then the third great event is the new administration which is going to be appointed at that time these things just stand out in the verse and we think today we could scarcely get through the verse without seeing the importance of each now, these three events are all connected. They follow in sequence. One belongs to the other. They're like the three points in the triangle. You can't take away a corner of a triangle without spoiling the shape of the whole. So the Lord has been pleased to take these three subjects, teaching about the kingdom. He has been pleased to bring these three subjects together and yet 
in spite of the fact that the Lord is speaking here, speaking to his people, in spite of the fact that we have indicated that he's speaking about significant events, significant events at the end of the age, in spite of all this, it appears to me, and we're looking at words here that are strangely overlooked by multitudes of believers. I have a feeling that preachers and writers have either ignored these words or passed them by with hardly a mention. Would your experience be similar? To me, the words might as well not be there. For all the attention they get in Christian circles. There has to be something wrong there. Remember, we're talking about the teaching of the Lord. Remember, we're speaking about the end time. Remember, we're bringing together three events as he has taught them to us. Bringing together three signal events. They belong to one another. And we can't just somehow set them aside. We wouldn't want to, surely. Seeing they are the word of the Lord. And the chapters of consuming interest. uh, As we get to the last part, the last half, shall we say, of um, Matthew 19... Our attention is focused on the young. Uh, We don't have a young people's meeting on hand just now. Uh, But if we did, we could speak of the mothers and the children. And that comes up in verse 13, 14 and 15. Notice the attention the Lord gives to the little ones and also to their mothers. Now, they haven't received the best reception, and the disciples indeed have rebuked them, God's people. And can we just stop there? Even the best of the Lord's people haven't always done the wisest thing, and they haven't always been most gracious, and they haven't had the mind of Christ either. And that's a serious matter for heart inspection for you'll see verse 14 how the Lord corrected his servant and he said plainly don't you forbid them are we forbidding something the Lord has permitted wouldn't be surprised are we any better than the disciples who are here following the Lord as we read of them in the chapter are we any better we'd have to say surely no we're not we may get out of line We may misinterpret the mind of the Lord. I feel we're in danger of that all the time. So that's the first note. And then there's this diversion uh, in the chapter. I call it the diversion because the the, uh, concentration of the disciples will shift considerably now. The Lord there, we part from that company of the young. He laid his hands on them and departed thence. But now have a circumstance which relates to a young man. He's very wealthy. I have called him the rich young ruler. For ruler he is. That indicates he's a devout person. He's young but he's devout. He's wealthy. Exceedingly wealthy but he's devout. He's an extraordinary person. He's more extraordinary still For given the fact that he's young and he's rich, he's concerned about his soul. Matthew tells us about him, Mark also, and even in Luke, we read of this young man. So let me remind you still, we're talking about the young here. Uh, We have moved up a gear from the babes in arms. This young fellow, I don't know what age he was. Was he in his twenties? 
Maybe, maybe thereabouts. He's certainly a responsible person and he's deeply burdened. He's concerned about his soul. And that question, if we just give the substance of it, is what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He's in deadly earnest. He's mistaken in many things. He's confused about the way of life. It's clear. And just like many today, even if we could find people on the street out there who would show an interest in spiritual things and an interest in the way of salvation, you would find yourself overwhelmed with their confusion. Although you yourself would be clear enough about the Bible, that's true, but you would just... And getting a sample of the confusion fills the mind of the sinner out there. You would see how necessary it is to get a word from God. So this young man is saying, what must I do? And the Lord is showing him. But he's not willing to pay the price. Because the price that he's asked to pay is greater than he has considered necessary. But just in passing there, you couldn't doubt his earnestness. He's not ashamed to ask the Lord about the way of salvation. For there must have been quite a gathering there that day. And yet, darting out from the midst of the crowd, for it says, he came running. How eager he is. He's an extraordinary person, true enough. He comes running to the Lord with this question uppermost in his soul. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? We can't doubt his earnestness for he gets right down in the dust. Being wealthy as he is, he must have been dressed in the best. I would say his attire would show his wealth. And how would he stoop down in the dusty eastern highway and ask the way of salvation? Well, you have to be in earnest to do that. Even you today, it may not be in your best attire, or you may say, oh, yes, I am. But wouldn't you find it a test to go out in the street there and kneel right down on the pavement? Would you say, oh, I'd be a mess in no time? Uh, here's a man so consumed with a question he's not considering that and the Lord doesn't see him as a hypocrite because the scripture shows the Lord seeing him loved him the Lord wouldn't have loved him if he had been a hypocrite or if he'd been insincere or if he'd been a, a candidate for eternal life who didn't fit the bill and so our Lord spoke to him then he wasn't willing to pay the price. Here the Lord said to him, It's plain enough, isn't it? And the Lord told him to sell all he had, give to the poor, he would have treasure in heaven. This young man just went away, filled with sorrow, deeply, deeply grieved. In his heart, because he had great possessions. He was thinking more of what he stood to lose, uh, as he saw it, rather than what he stood to gain. And yet, what he stood to lose, great as he thought it was, what he stood to lose is as nothing compared to what he stood to gain, if only he had known that day. It's then that Peter edges in with the question, and there's a whole lot more, but I can't take time with that area. And yet he's saying, well, Lord, you promised him treasure in heaven. What do we have? What do we get? Uh, and Peter is saying, uh, in that sense to the Lord, we have given up everything. We've followed thee fully. We've gone over the hills, down into the valleys. We've tramped the roads. What, what, what will we get? What will we gain? And the Lord could have rebuked them there. And maybe somebody else would have been rebuked for saying such a thing to the Lord. But the Lord gives them a two-part answer. And the first part of the answer has regard to the present time. That comes in in this gospel. It comes in in, uh, in the verse 29. Uh, the answer to the question. What do we get? 
Well, you don't serve the Lord for what you get. That's, that's most apparent. And I'm sure Peter didn't intend that we should think of him in that way because he gave up the fishing trade. He followed the Lord fully. He even said he was willing to lay down his life for the Lord. He was, he was in earnest when he said that. But the Lord says a wonderful thing here. And I, I repeat it for your encouragement. Everyone hath forsaken. If you've given up anything for the Lord, you'd find the Lord's no man's debtor. It's a marvelous statement. Immensely encouraging to any of God's servants in hard places. Especially when things have gone against them terribly and discouragement has filled their minds, we'd have to say, listen, everyone, oh, everyone, just start where the Lord starts. Everyone that has forsaken houses, brethren, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands, for my sake, for my name's sake, for the gospel's sake shall receive an hundredfold, and that's this present lifetime, shall inherit in the world to come everlasting life. Isn't that something to think about? Having said all that, the Lord moved into the world to come. And that's the subject in verse 28. I want you to think about it very carefully because I did say already it seems to me that many writers and speakers have studiously avoided the words here that are in front of us today. And why have they done that? They're not ignorant of the fact that uh, verse 28 represents the words of the Lord. There's not one preacher who's born again and loves the gospel. There's not one who would need to be told, that's the word of the Lord now. <laughs> what we would have to tell them, if we find that very largely in their consideration of the gospel history, they have left this verse out. Or else they've just gone on hurriedly with scarcely a mention. So that I was prompted to say today, it might as well not be there. For all the attention it has got. Could we give it some attention today? I pray the Lord to imprint these words in our hearts because not that we know everything, and we won't, but we should know more than we presently know. If we're looking at the end time, the end time is as much a part of divine revelation as anything else in the gospel history. So our Lord taught it. Did our Lord ever waste his time? No, he didn't. Was he ever misdirected in ministering to his saints? No, he wasn't. So the Lord doesn't err in speaking about the matter, and we don't err, therefore, in studying as best we can what he says. I know for a fact, if the Lord draws near, opens up this verse to our souls, I know we'll go away glad we came. I'm thankful that the Lord spoke to us today. That's the way I want God to answer prayer. The Lord to speak personally. For everyone to say, well, I came along today and was busy. My mind was filled with this and that. I didn't really think I could give attention in the way that I have done. Well, that would be God's work, wouldn't it? Yes. So let us see what the Lord is saying. I started off by saying these all important words point to three signal events that are going to occur at the end of the age. The first of them has to be the return of the Lord. That focuses our thoughts considerably when we look at verse 28. The Lord Jesus Christ is to return in power and great glory. And this in fulfillment of many, many prophetic scriptures, scriptures that you know you've read before, although it won't do the least bit of harm to look at them again, not that I'm going to look at them all, but we want to look at some. I have it in mind to take 
um, Zechariah 14. And to combine the opening verses of that chapter with words at the beginning of the book of Revelation. So we have some words from the Old Testament there, some words from the New Testament. There in Zechariah 14, uh, verse 4, describing the return of the Savior, these are powerful words. His feet, the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, his nail-scarred feet, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. How painstaking the writer is, uh, proceeding with the promptings of God to make sure we don't misunderstand uh, what is intended here. Because God's people, and they've been doing it from time immemorial, it's not just from the advent of amillennialism and so on, that God's people have been spiritualizing the word, where in the first place it was intended to be taken literally. But just to make it difficult for the man who's bent on interpreting things prophetical in that mystical fashion. The Lord is saying, it's the Mount of Olives, names the mountain, and that's the mountain before Jerusalem. And not only so, but he gives the location on the point of the compass, Mount of Olives is on the east of Jerusalem. Well, friends, uh, Mount of Olives is still there today. It's still that mountain towering above the old city of Jerusalem. It's there before Jerusalem on the east, sure and certain as anything. Any time I have stood there, I've always thought, and I'm sure others of God's people have been the same, they've thought of that hour when the trumpet sounds and the king comes and his feet will stand here. His feet will stand here. That is overwhelming. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst, the same mountain is mentioned. I won't extend my thoughts there because in the first instance I just want to emphasize this. Zechariah 14 is about the coming of the Lord. Now open your Bible at Revelation chapter 1. Open your Bible, Revelation chapter 1 and, and keep your thumb if you can or a finger for that matter in, in Zechariah because we want to get back there. I'm just paralleling these Graphic words in Revelation 1 and 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds. The Lord is coming back again. Every believer should recognize that. There are some branches of Christian thought. And uh, I'm not calculating this to a fine point here. But in round terms. They're not looking for the Lord to come back if he comes back at all. By the space of 300,000 years. That's people who are obliged to study the year-day theory and go by that. I'm, I'm glad it's a simpler thing by far just to take the Bible literally as it stands. And I won't have to count down 300,000 years to wait for the coming of the Lord. No, the Lord will be here before that. And we look at these words, Revelation 1 and 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds. These are the clouds of glory. Every eye shall see him. Nobody will make a mistake about it when the Lord comes. There are good friends who think, oh, half uh, the town, half the village will not see him. And only those who believe will see him. But every eye surely is, surely is every eye, isn't it? Every eye shall see him. And they also which pierce him. Uh, there we have the Jews brought in. And all the kindreds of the earth, they know about it too. Plainly they do. Because of their reaction. Notice their response, please. All the kindreds of the earth shall wail 
because of him. That shows their unreadiness. That shows they're unconverted. That shows how wretched they are in their sins. How far away from God. How ill-prepared they are to meet him. All the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. There are those who are of Jacob's stock. Who are brought in to play there in verse 7. Those who pierced him shall see him. But then Zechariah 12.10 tells us of the remnant of the Jews in that day. Who will look on him whom they have pierced. And what a morning, what a spirit of repentance will be given then when they see the Savior coming in power. Now in Zechariah 14, if we can just piece some things together very, very quickly. We're told about the Lord's coming in Zechariah chapter 14. Remember, that is the same event that is described in uh, Revelation 1 and 7. Now his feet will start. He cometh with clouds, John says in the apocalypse, and every eye shall see him. But we don't follow him uh, the rest of his journey. It's left to Zechariah to enable us to follow him. Look, there he is descending the sky. There he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him. John tells us that. But are we watching now? He's coming until his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And he's coming, latter part of verse 5, do you see? He'll come and all the saints with him. There won't be one left behind. All the saints of God will be there. Zechariah 14 verse 5. Have you seen that? The Lord my God shall come. See the deity of Christ there. The Messiah is the Son of God and God the Son. The Lord my God shall come. And all the saints with thee. He's not coming on his own. He'll come with his mighty angels. But he has all the saints of God with him. And the title that he's given here Shows his supreme deity. The Lord my God shall come. That's how Thomas confessed him. My Lord, my God. That's how the Jews will see him. As he comes in that day to the Mount of Olives. Notice verse 9 of Zechariah 14. I'm saying this great event is chronicled. Throughout the scriptures. Here it is in Zechariah. Our Lord taught his servants that he would come again. And the apostle John at the very end of the book is telling us of the Lord's coming. And here in Zechariah so many things are, are brought to the fore in Zechariah 14. That's why I like, I like to turn to this passage. Because in verse 9 it says the Lord shall be king over all the earth. He's king already. He's the Lord God omnipotent now. But his kingly power and grace is not manifest to men. But it will be in that day. And that's what we're talking about. His kingly glory being manifested. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. We could say that again. Over all the earth. In that day there shall be a variety of faiths. And many, many religions. Well, if it says that, you must have a different version to what I have. Because here's what the authorized version says. Verse 9. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord. And his name, one. So the kingdom we're talking about. To be established. With our Lord Jesus Christ himself reigning on that throne. Will show that the hearts of all men are fixed on him. Their faith savingly. Those who belong to him. Just as it is today lodged in him. And in no other. One Lord and his name one. You can see how this event, the Lord's coming, follows the assault of the nations in Jerusalem. And I can't uh, linger here. But verse 2 has to be examined. 
We're talking about Zechariah 14. You can see then just immediately prior to the Lord's return how God has said, I'll gather these nations. Nations that in their wrath have shown their opposition to righteousness and truth, everything that's good and right and proper. They have been uh, gathering in revolt against the Lord. They show that revolt today. Here we're, we have a country here that's in revolt against the Lord. This is not a Christian country. Far from it. But the Lord's saying, these nations will be given the opportunity at the last to vent their rage. And I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is the last great uh, revolt of the nations. And you can see that the Lord will intervene on behalf of Israel. Look at verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. That's when he fought in the day of battle. That argues the return of Bible days. Just as those spectacular uh, events occurred in the history of Israel. So the Lord will use the forces of nature. He'll demonstrate his omnipotent power. In that great day the Lord shall fight against them. Just as he fought in the day of battle. In the days of old. Hurriedly, if we look at chapter 12 in Zechariah verse 9, there is a glimpse given again of these nations. And it says in verse 9 of chapter 12, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. They come with vengeance. They come to wipe the nation of Israel off the face of the earth. They come with all their technology, all their armaments, all their multitudes, all their hosts. Scripture seems to say, let them all come. We have that spirit of challenge in the book of Joel. Let them all come. And then Joel says, Lord, thither cause thy mighty ones to come down. What a confrontation there will be. As I've said, we've stood there in all of it. We've looked down into the Kidron Valley. And there, the valley of Jehoshaphat is sometimes named. The Lord has shown that he will gather the nations there in his wrath. Psalm 2 says he will vex them in his sore displeasure. Those who participate in that last great assault against Jerusalem are doomed. Every one of them. That's why we have the thought, men will cry to the rocks and to the mountains. And that brother wrote the words of the gospel song. He prayed, but their prayer was too late. I will seek to destroy the nations, all of them, that come against Jerusalem. The nations that venture upon that assault, they're doomed from the start, no matter what technological devices they employ, no matter how great the multitudes that are there at their command. I say, that's the first great event. The Lord's coming. And uh, the Bible shows us most emphatically that when the Lord comes back again, he will destroy those nations that have thought to wipe Jerusalem off the face of the earth. He will destroy the man of sin. And he will cast Satan into the bottomless pit. God's people will reign with him, as Zechariah 14 shows. And you'll remember in Revelation 20, will reign with him 1,000 years. We look at the regeneration. This is a special time. The Lord has called it the regeneration. The word only occurs twice in the Bible. Here, in reference to the Saviour's return. And then the other time, you'll remember, Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where it refers to the salvation of the sinner, the miracle of regeneration in the heart of the unconverted person. But what is the regeneration that the Lord's speaking about here in, uh, in Matthew? In the regeneration. It's an important time. It has to do with 
the time of his coming. And I believe it is illustrated well by what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. If you want to look up the words, just do that. Look at the verse uh, 20, uh, 21 of Acts chapter 3. I'm going to start verse 19 just to get the sequence. Repent ye therefore and be converted. This is the time at Pentecost, that huge revival, that wonderful time when the Holy Spirit of God was poured out with such power. And the church of Christ was established then in Jerusalem. Repent ye therefore and be converted. Your sins may be blotted out. And then Peter looks forward to those times of refreshing that shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. So we have the time for evangelistic preaching. And that certainly is something we can look back on from our position in time. But the Lord hasn't come back the second time yet. And verse 21 anticipates that hour. Whom the heaven must receive. So the Lord has risen from the dead. He has ascended up into heaven. He's reigning there at the right hand of the majesty on high. But he's coming again. For the scripture says in verse 20 here that God the Father will send Jesus Christ. And it's then that the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. The greatest revivals are still future. When the Lord comes back, those times all the times of refreshing and the presence of the Lord. And the heavens must receive him, verse 21, until the times of the restitution of all things. And God has spoken about this. He's spoken about it frequently in the Old Testament. That's clear from verse 21. The times of restitution. What does the word restitution mean? Indicate to you, it means surely a a restoring, a bringing back into its proper place the way of life that was established before. So the times for the restitution is bringing back divine rule to this earth, bringing back the supremacy of the word of God, bringing back for the nations The fact that God is God. That Jesus Christ is the great king. The restitution of all things means that in that day the Lord's going to straighten out this world order. And it's so great a change. It's called the regeneration. The regeneration as if the world was being born again into a newness of life. It's a tremendous thought. Could we fit in a little of Isaiah 11? Because uh, if you were saying, is this regeneration illustrated in the Bible? I believe it is in the passage we have looked at in Acts 3, verses 20 and 21. I believe this is an illustration also at Isaiah chapter 11. When the Lord comes back, I believe this is a picture of the world in that period called the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Our our Lord will come back again. And Isaiah 11, uh, as we look into uh, the verses here, we can see some of the changes, dramatic changes, spectacular changes that will take place in the earth. After all, the word regeneration is used. So that is not... uh, a word indicative of minimal change. Word regeneration will have to indicate something very radical. And so when the Lord comes back, there will be that change that will take place in the earth in every way. It says, allow me to abridge comments in Isaiah 11. With righteousness shall he judge the poor. That's verse 4. With righteousness shall he judge the poor. And then again, he'll smite the earth, verse 4, with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Uh, The word is there in the singular. 
the wicked one. You think today, will you, of Second Thessalonians 2, how the Lord speaks of the Antichrist, the man of sin, him he will destroy with the brightness of his coming. He'll smite the wicked one with the breath of his lips. We see the change in creation and the animal creation completely transformed in a way that many can't accept. But it doesn't matter whether we can accept it or not. The Lord will do it. I, I tell you this, um, and I can't extend the thoughts today without running the risk of wearying you. Or worse, still putting you to sleep. I don't want that to happen. Well, I, I would just love to, can you do it later? Read Romans 8. Well, somebody will say, oh, there's nothing of that in the New Testament. You're reading from the Old Testament. Well, isn't the Old Testament's the word of God every bit as much as the New? Mm-hmm. <coughs> and if you think of Romans chapter 8, there's no escaping this. But that creation will change. Here, here's what it says in verse um, 19 of Romans 8. The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. You know what that means? It means the creation is waiting for the time when God's people put on their new bodies. Already you're a child of God. You've been saved. You belong to the Lord. You've got God's peace. Already you're his. But the world doesn't see you as a child of God. The manifestation of the Christian has not yet occurred. When we put on our new bodies, in that day we'll be like Christ. We'll shine with the brightness of the sun, our Lord Jesus Christ says. Well, the earnest expectation of the creature or the creation. That's Romans eight nineteen. If you didn't quite get the reference. Waiteth. Creation's waiting for something. Waiting an expectation. Did you know that? It is said rightly, nature is red in tooth and claw. And only God can change the animal creation and the physical creation. Well, these are the changes that will occur. And they're waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. They're not waiting in vain. There is an expectation, and it's called an earnest expectation. Do you see that? Multitudes of believers pass the scripture by in this place and don't sense that there's any expectation out there in nature at all. And they don't see it as an earnest expectation. Waiting for the manifestation, a day when the Lord will change his people physically and they will shine in his likeness. Uh, And then verse 20, for the creature or the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because... The creature itself shall be delivered. Now what does that tell you? Creation will be delivered. If there's no literal reign of Christ on earth, if Isaiah 11 doesn't have any fulfillment in the animal creation, then creation isn't delivered. And the Apostle Paul is right out of line, although we know he's writing here by the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Well, he's right out of line. Because creation will not be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty. Hey, what remarkable words the apostles using. Glorious liberty of the sons of God. Creation will benefit from that wonderful change. And not only they, that's the animal creation. Not only they, but ourselves also. We have this hope. You see how there's such a coming together? I think it's powerful. I can't go on with Isaiah 11. But you'll see there how in verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy. And of, of Isaiah 11. Sorry if I haven't made that clear. Isaiah 11 verse 9. They shall not hurt nor destroy. In all my holy mountain. Listen. And this goes along with a renewed creation. The earth 
shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. That's extensive coverage. The thought here is the waters keep on covering the sea. Could you go down to the shore? Could you go down to the coast there, the south coast or any other coast? Look at the sea and have somebody like me come along and say, Tell me, uh, do the waters cover the sea? You look at me the second time to see if I'm quite sound upstairs. Uh, Yes, yes, you can satisfy. I hope you can satisfy yourself of that. I tell you this, just as the waters cover the sea, you can't get a square inch of the sea out there, but it isn't covered by the water. And that's how extensive, how full knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be then. I have to come to the last point, this new dimension. When you will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Can't leave this out either. All these things are important. They're signal events. At the start, I said, the Lord has linked them together. They're like the three corners of the triangle. We can't take one out and leave the others and hope to get a sensible shape out of what's left. No, all three go together. The coming of the king, the Lord ascending the throne, that's the first thing. Secondly, the regeneration of the earth and the heavens themselves are changed by what takes place on earth. That's a grand occasion. And then lastly, a new administration appointed. You shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I think some people, when they come to this, if they're in the way of commentating on the passage, just hope that they can take it spiritually in some way. But listen, the twelve tribes of Israel are mentioned five times in the New Testament. First time is here, in this portion of scripture and the last time which we needn't turn up now given uh, the amount of time we have revelation 21 and 12 when you're given you're given a vision of the new jerusalem and you can see the gates to the city and on those gates because god hasn't forgotten them god hasn't forgotten them the names of the 12 tribes of israel if you have a part in the new jerusalem a millennialist will have a good time and post-millennialists too when they come to walk through the gates and see the names of the twelve tribes of Israel and know that God had Israel in mind when he uh, decreed that those names should be there. But should we take it literally? I want to put it to you as quickly as I can how we should take this passage literally that When the Lord comes back, sits upon the throne of his glory, and that period called the regeneration is ushered in, and a new administration is appointed, namely that they shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I'd like you to see just a few things. First of all, I'll be as quick as I can with this. Look at um, Psalm 122, please. Look at Psalm 122. And yes, I believe that in Psalm 122, we have reason to consider the teaching of the Lord here in the gospel. We're looking at verse 5, Psalm 122, one of the Psalms of degrees. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I believe there is a, a prophetic Fullness to this psalm. And Jerusalem is spoken of. Verse 4. Whether the tribes go up. Remember the Lord's speaking about the tribes. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And thither, if this psalm is prophetic, I'm convinced it is. Although, yes, it does have a history, admittedly. But we're looking in the main out into that future time, whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there, ah, this word there, quite common 
could be misunderstood. As if the sentence is to read, there are set there thrones of judgment, but that's not what's intended at all. You've quite got the wrong end of the stick if you read the verse like that, uh, to your way of thinking. Uh, There are set thrones of judgment up there. No, that's not it. It means rather there in that place. Please see that. There in that place are set the thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. That emphatically is how the verse is to be read. It is borne out by other passages where the word translated there is found in the Old Testament. If we had lots and lots of time, we could really have a very interesting study together. I'll remind you of the last words in the book of Ezekiel, the title for the Lord, Jehovah Shema. And possibly you know the meaning of that name. The Lord is what? The Lord is there. And that's how the word's used in the Psalm 122. There, in that place, there, I would have you know. There, in that place, Shema. That's the word that he use, uses here in the Psalm. Shema, there, in that place. Just as you have in the title, the Lord is there. Hallelujah. What a difference to the city. The Lord is king. The Lord in the midst thereof. What a blessing to know where Jesus is. As we have often sung, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. That's heaven on earth. So, yes, the word is literally understood. I I don't see any option. The psalm prophetically foreshadows the time. And furthermore, come back to Matthew and notice how our Lord starts this reference in verse 28. Did you miss it? I wonder, did you miss it in the reading? Or did you miss it when I began today and read out the verse again? Could you have missed it? There's one word. Have another look at verse 28. It's the word verily. You don't ever want to ignore that one. I know it occurs so often that it becomes commonplace or there's a risk of it becoming commonplace. But you will know once you start turning it over in your mind. This word verily means truly. Truly. It's not just a kind of glorified imagination. It's not some sort of visual that will fade away like a slideshow after the lights come on. No, verily means the Lord indeed will do this. The Lord in very deed will do it. Can I get you to use your pen and underscore the word verily? Because it means as sure as anything. Truly. So if the Lord says, truly, ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, then you can say, yeah, for sure. Verily will mean that. Then there's something else. I wonder if you know this. You see verse 28? It's, it's got to be understood literally because the Lord spoke about this again. Twice in the Gospels, you'll find the equivalent of these words. Once is here, obviously. And what about the other place? Well, we have to turn to the Gospel of Luke to find it. And before you do, it's Luke 22. Before you do, I want you to know the occasion's different. Sometimes in the gospel, the Lord is seen to do a certain thing or say a certain thing. And the period is uh, identifiable. So we can say, that's the time there in Matthew such and such. And there it is over there in Mark or in Luke. It's the same thing. Well, How many times does the Lord have to say a thing for us to believe him? Surely once. Well, if the Lord says it the second time, shouldn't you? Give more attention to it. And let me ask you, suppose the second time he says it, he says it in conditions of overwhelming 
earnestness and solemnity. We'd have to turn to Luke to see it. Luke 22. And there in the upper room before he goes to Gethsemane. I put it to you. Spirit of suspense fills the air in that room before they go. Shadow of the cross falls upon the countenance of our dear Saviour. The disciples can feel the tension in the air. This is a moment of special significance, special solemnity, special anxiety. Surely at such a time when the Lord speaks, you would want to weigh his every word. And verse 29, he says here in the upper room, I appoint unto you a kingdom. As my Father hath appointed unto me that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, conducting the affairs of the kingdom. At the most solemn moment, our Lord repeats the matter. And yet, to come back on things I've said today, there are writers and speakers who have just shot by the passage hardly daring to stop with it. It might as well not be there. But when we see the Lord in that moment of sublime solemnity in the upper room before he goes out to Gethsemane, holding up their hearts with this wonderful prospect, then we can say, yes, Lord, True indeed. These elements I'm putting in here show that we should be taking this passage literally. We shouldn't be hesitant about it. The Psalm 122, plain enough, surely. Then the mention of the Lord of the word verily, truly. Then certainly it's come to pass. And here we have the repetition of the fact. And the Lord repeating it again in the upper room. You remember that Joseph said to Pharaoh, way back, and you needn't turn up the place, Genesis forty-one thirty-two. he said the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God, that God will shortly bring it to pass. And so when the second time, the second time for the item to be stated by God establishes its certainty. Can you take this one more thing? And then I'm finished. It's a story. Well, it's a, it's a Bible story. There was a crowd standing there that day when Peter put his question, what will we get out of it? And the Lord said, there's no man that's left anything for me, but he'll receive a hundredfold more this present life. And you... You who have continued with me, you'll be sitting on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There was a dear woman standing in the crowd that day. And she gave rapt attention to the Lord as he spoke. She was fascinated. And she stood there drinking in every word. And she took it literally. She took it far more literally than the rest of the disciples wanted. I'll tell you what she did. First opportunity. She steps forward. She has her two, her grown men. They're not wee boys. But she has her two sons with her. She says, Lord, grant me a favor. He says, what is it? Oh, he knows full well what it is. But he would have her say it. He says, Lord, when you come to your kingdom... And you have a place in these thrones. Will you grant to my boys? What mother is it won't be thinking of her sons? And so, she said, my two boys, James and John, no less. James and John? Oh, they have a great advocate. And they have their mother coming forward to talk to the Lord for them. Give them, I pray you, she said. One on your right hand, one on your left, when you come to the kingdom. Would you like to read about it? Chapter 20 in Matthew. 
There, there's the mother of Zebedee's children. Zebedee's wife is doing this. Chapter 20, verse 20. Now, if you go to an optician's, he may say to you, good news, you have 20-20 vision. Well, here in this chapter, you have 20-20. See, chapter 20, verse 20. You have 20-20 version. And she's worshipping him and asking him this. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. And then they say, oh yes, because they're backing their mother up. And the ten are offended. Ah, but he says here, it is in the will of my father, in the domain of my father, to appoint places for the one who sits at my right hand and my left hand. That's verse 23. Uh, that place is prepared for them of my father. Notice this. The Lord didn't say to her, you're wrong. He didn't say you made a mistake. He didn't say, oh, I don't want you to take it literally. He didn't say, you've got a complete misconception of the whole thing. No, no. He supports what she says. He shows the reality of what she says. But with this difference, he's saying, now... It's well for you to feel for your sons the way you do. But those two places are already reserved. What does that tell you? Unmistakably. What does it tell you? Here is a promise made by the Lord which is given a literal fulfillment. And Acts 1 and 6 is just the same. When they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? The Lord said, he didn't say, oh, you're wrong. Got a misconception there. He said, no, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set in his own power. And the Lord is coming back again. These three great events are set out in the treasury of Scripture. And it's our privilege to give attention to them and hold them in a special place in our hearts because every word there was spoken by our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless his word today.